invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the fourth gospel. Chapter 5 of John's Gospel, this spiritual gospel as it was referred to back then, written much later than the synoptics, the first three gospels. And so there's a difference in tone, there's a difference in really objective while saying the same thing, while presenting the same gospel, of course. This has been uniquely powerful to us as we've been going through this since last September. We're going through this, and today, Lord willing, we will conclude chapter 5 and look forward to, again, a very powerful chapter in chapter 6, the bread of life. And there's so much more in all of those, one of the longer chapters in the Gospel of John. So we're blessed. We've been blessed and we've learned a lot about our Gospel. It's informed us. There isn't a span or a space where we haven't seen the deity of Jesus Christ proclaimed. That he is the Son of God and the Son of Man should be very clear. At the outset, it's clear, of course, but he's given us different ways to testify to that great fact, that essential of our gospel. And when we looked at this long discourse that he's had in chapter 5 as he's begun in verse 16 all the way down through verse 47. He's addressing the Jews that are in opposition of him. And he's making his case. Already they've been thinking about killing him because in verse 18 they say because he made himself equal with God, they thought all the more to kill him. So it's already begun in earnest, even though it's going to be some time, many, many days before that actually happens. So this is how early they not only oppose him, they despise him. They're filled with contempt for him. He's upsetting their entire life, their entire lifestyle. Everything would be in jeopardy. If this were, in fact, the Messiah and he was allowed to preach the outlandish things in their view that he's preaching, these claims of his that would destroy what to them is more of a career than a calling. It's more the ways they view their prosperity. The landed gentries that are on the Sanhedrin, those who have made their money through this self-imposed system of religion, all in jeopardy, the ground starting to shake. And now here he is. Who is this man? We, isn't he the son of the fisherman? Uh, isn't, he, isn't he the son of the carpenter, rather? Uh, isn't he hanging out with fishermen? I mean, who is this man to be challenging everything that we've been teaching, everything we've built our lives upon down to the jot and the tittle, straining at gnats, counting out herbs? We were fastidious law keepers of the law of Moses. That's our father. Abraham's our father. Who's his father? Nobody knows, right? Well, you know what that means. Who is this man who would talk to us this way? Who would challenge us? Nobody else in their right mind in our community would challenge us. And yet here he is, one line after the next. What's amazing is when we started this two-part series to conclude this discourse last week, he is likening himself in a very clear way. I mean, very, it's, it's unequivocal. It's not embellished. Some people might get a little bit nervous and in their nervousness to make a point that they know it's going to upset everybody across the board might 
tend to over-talk, right, over-embellish. I try to think that they have to kind of explain themselves away. Not him. Not him. He's, he's just as comfortable saying good morning as he is to I and the Father are one. Wow. Knowing that's going to cost him his life. So there's one who bears witness here, and we learned last week that one who bears witness that this is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. Who is that witness? The Father, the one he likened himself to. So he does that in a threefold way. That is, if you remember in verse 37, where he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So that's his witness. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. So how is it then that he bore witness? My voice was in a man named John the Baptist. My forerunner who spoke for me. The visual, the miracles. You saw people healed before your very eyes. So in this threefold way, the third being the scriptures and the scriptures that historically should have prepared you to recognize him when he came. But you would not believe. See, this is the amazing part that takes us into our final section this morning. You would not believe. I, I, I see an, I, I almost hear an element of his bewilderment. If he weren't completely omniscient, he almost as a man seems bewildered. You have been given everything in this threefold way and more. The scriptures bear witness of me. John the Baptist bears witness of me. I prove the power of deity at him, ourselves, if you will, through the miracles that were performed. And there's not just a couple. There's many, many, many. He was pretty much healing across the board, across the countries. And he didn't wait to do that in a corner at night or, well, if you can meet me in private. He did it in broad daylight in front of thousands of people. So they followed him. They followed him around. You want more than that? Well, we would believe if you would give us a sign, they say in another place. You know, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for the sign, and a no sign is going to be given. You've seen enough. You've seen enough. This man who in verses 25 to 29, as we looked at it, declared his divine power over life, over death. He's going to be raising the dead. The Father giving him this. He, he equates himself. He stays right with the Father as he walks through this discourse. You can't separate the two of us. His will is my will. I came to do his will. He is the judge of all, but he has given me judgment. And if you don't honor me, you don't honor him. Who is this man that would make such bold proclamations? Wow. I mean, it's clearly, if he, didn't, if he hadn't had them stunned where they stand, they would, have, they would have charged him and killed him like they did Stephen. Stephen, when he preached that profound sermon in Acts chapter 7, that's exactly what they did. Not here. His time has not yet come. Apparently and obviously the time has come for him to start stirring things up, right? 
We're not, we're not uh, missing that because they want to kill him. It's just remarkable. It's, it's, it's just remarkable the claims that he's making and who his witness is, no less than God the Father himself. So he concludes now in our portion this morning when we're looking at verse 38 to 47, he's concluding now with heart-piercing convictions. There's a lot of open-ended questions here. There's a lot of what, what the, the, the most proficient uh, biblical counselor would try to accomplish, and that is craft questions that are provoking thought. If this, then that. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me because he spoke of me. Pure, inescapable logic that has them around the throat. They can't escape. What can they say? But he was masterful at that, wasn't he? At stopping them dead in their tracks. Why? Because he's God. Well, that's the easy answer. But because he could... He could read their minds. He, could, he is the Word of God Himself, the Logos, the one who has come to speak for the Father. And yet, you will not believe. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Father, we pause to ask for your help. These, these words are so profound in their majestic clarifications and proclamations. They cause our knees. Any thinking person, any person with any vestige of a conscience left for their knees to shake. And yet here we are. And yet, O Lord, you would call a sinful man, yet saved by grace, to bring these words to bear. I pray, dear God, that you are here with us today. You speak. They don't want to hear my opinions or my renderings my interpretations of things. They want to hear from you. So Lord, would you be pleased as you did in that day to simply speak clear and profound truths, do so into our hearing and into our hearts that you would be glorified. For we pray in your son's name. Amen. So I'm going to start right in. Verse 38, I already read 37. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. It's the Father who bears witness through those three ways that I mentioned that we've gone through already. Now let's see how he unpacks this going forward in ways that he goes after their heart. He goes after things contemporary with John the Baptist. He goes after the forerunner, mentioning that he is being used of the Father as a witness. And he's pointing out the miracles. Those are contemporary things that are going on. But then the scriptures themselves are historical. They've, they've been with them you know, for millennia. They've been with them a long time. They've been with them all the way back to Moses, which in whom they hang all of their hope and confidence. 
That's why he goes after him. And he mentions who he's actually talking about. This should bring conviction. I mean, try to. I know it's hard to do. We have to think sequentially. We have to sort of collapse in a zip file everything that's been said from this profound discourse. And if you're there that day and you're hearing this, see if, if, if you can understand how it is absolutely remarkable that they aren't falling down weeping before the Lord of glory who speaks to them. It's amazing. Verse 38, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. He's still going. You'd think he'd be making apology. You'd think he'd be trying to explain himself away. That's what we do in our nervousness and our fear of man, right? Well, we're going to keep going and blather on. We're going to dither over things. Well, maybe, you know, not him. He's doubling down. He goes even deeper. He even goes further in terms of their convictions. You remember the, the Hebrew Shema, the Shema, Shema just means to hear in Hebrew. And uh, it's really, it's, it's still cited today in synagogue. Twice a day, they recite the Shema, the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 4 through verse 6. The Shema is verse 4 and 5. But listen to verse Six. It's going to be important as we go along. So this is the central affirmation of Judaism because this is something they recite through the millennia every day, even today, to the Orthodox believers, right? So here it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. And these words, verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. Where were these words? At least for verse 4 and 5, where were they? Anybody know? Strapped to their forehead and strapped to their wrist. They were called phylacteries. The Orthodox Jews, when we lived in New York City, you could see them down in Williamsburg walking around with the robes, with the tassels, the furry hats, and all the rest. And they would have a little black box that was tied around their wrist, and they would have one around their head because they were supposed to honor the Word of God, and the Word of God was supposed to always be with them. Do you see something blatantly missing? At the heart. And yet Deuteronomy, you, can, you, can, you don't have to go further than the Pentateuch. The Deuteronomy makes it clear. Circumcise the foreskins of your hearts, saith the Lord. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want you strapping his word to your head or to your hand. He wants it in your heart. And they failed to do that. And that's what he's talking about here. You search, you, um, excuse me, you don't have his word abiding in you. Because they could have said, well, we have his word on us. We have it in the synagogue. There's a copy, there's a scroll there that we read in the synagogue and we abide by every bit of it. For you do not believe the one whom he sent. If the Words of even Moses would have been tucked away in their heart in a sincere desire to see what the will of God is. 
then they would have recognized him when he came and welcomed him and fall, fall, they would have fell down and worshipped him. Like even the disciples did when they realized that who is this that, that commands the weather? Who is this that calms the seas? And they fell down and they worshipped him kind of maybe helps correct our view of what actual worship is. We like to define things in boxes. We have a very narrow way of defining what that is sometimes. But the psalmist got it right, didn't he? In Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word, where? In my heart. So there were those who, who got it. I have stored your word up in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's right. And Jesus said in John 8, 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Where it's supposed to be. In you. Ten verses later in verse 47 of John 8, he says this, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If you are of God, those words will come alive. And those of you who know God and have his word and know his word know what we're talking about here. He comes alive. Not it comes alive. He comes alive. He is the Logos. And he comes alive in the heart when he speaks to us through his word. Why? Because he's not here physically. You know where he is physically? In the body of Christ. You know where his words are physically? In the word of God. You know how they're illuminated by that same Holy Spirit that dwells in my heart and makes them come alive. I know by the years that I spent without him, where I lived against them, I, I, those words meant nothing to me. They were nonsense. There is a stark difference. His word is in me. His word is in you that belong to him. Because... You're not of God, that's why. I mean, he makes it very clear. He doesn't equivocate. I love that. He doesn't over-embellish. He would have pleased Thomas Jefferson, who said, never say in two words what you can say in one. I'm still trying to work on that. Pray for me, will you? Verse 39, he goes on about the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, this isn't saying that somebody can't be saved by reading the Word of God. If God's pleased to do it that way, he can and often does do that, doesn't he? So he goes on here. So that's not what he's talking about. You think that in them, in the, in the letters, in the word, they counted the words. You think that in, in this book, in the scroll, that is eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. These are my words. These are the Father's words. These are the words of God. So you don't have the scriptures because you don't have, you're not of God. You, you, you search the scriptures. Oh, you know the scriptures well. Our Old Testament, their extant scriptures at the time. You know them very, nobody knows them better than you. You've been teaching these things and abiding by them. 
And where it says, just a little sort of detail note where it says, you search the scriptures, some of your versions say, search the scriptures, because that Greek verb can be either in the imperative or the indicative form. But either way, it's saying the same thing. Whether it's a command, search the scriptures, or it's an indicative. You are searching the scriptures, which is the way I would take it and the way the ESV has it. You search the scriptures. You're already doing this because you think that abiding by what these words say, by doing the practice, these rituals, the feasts, the sacrifices, all of these things, that in them is eternal life. That's not what I want from you. I don't want your sacrifices. Take away your sacrifices. Take away your new moons and your feasts. Take away all of it. It's a stench to me. He wants our hearts or he wants none of us. So search. By the way, that word search means far more than simply reading. This is a, an in-depth, painstaking, consistent Lifelong study, careful look into his word. What would be the difference? You know, there's some that, ah, I got to read the Bible because I got to check that box off or I'll feel bad about myself as a moralist. Oh, excuse me, as a, as a religionist. I'm sorry, as a Christian. He speaks to you and I. If we care to come to him, to find him, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with more study, more memorizing. Search for me with what? Anybody know? With all your heart, part of your heart, some of your heart, a majority of your heart, all of your heart, all or nothing. My heart the majority of my heart had better be for him and nothing else or he wants no part of me. So this is way more than just reading so I can check a box. It's a sincere effort to find, to seek and find God. I, I had to have my kneecaps pounded pretty hard by him circumstantially, providentially, by choices I made before I finally said, help me. Help me. That's about as sincere as I was ever going to get. And he did because it was a sincere cry. We have to be careful what we might, what might happen to that after we've known the Lord for a long time. What happens to our reading of the word? So appreciate the first hour, brother. Right? Keeping the heart. So important. So important. That's what he wants. It says it, it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. At the end of Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 24, the Lord has appeared. You remember the men on the road to Emmaus, and he talks with them. And, and then he talks later. He goes to, shows up. <laughs> he didn't walk. I don't think he walked through the wall to show up in Jerusalem where the disciples were gathered at the very end there. And he tells them, but when he's first walking with the men on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 25 to 27, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe 
Why do people drag their feet to believe? Because they don't want to. They don't want to. It's not for lack of evidence. We've been, we've been going over some of the most profound evidence that would conv- convict any court in the land. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The whole of scriptures, which is sometimes referred to as Moses and the prophets, which is sometimes referred to as simply as Moses, Moses wrote. These talk, they're talking at the, in those moments and with that expression. They're talking about the whole of their scriptures. The Pentateuch, the first five books, the law of Moses. They're talking about the major and minor prophets. And they're talking about the hagiographa, which is the holy writings, which is the historical books all the way from Joshua through 1st, 2nd Samuel, through the kings, and so on, all the way through Nehemiah, all of those things, including the songs, psalms, proverbs, the poetry. All of that speaks of him. All of it. It's not the scriptures themselves that give life. That's our takeaway is here but the Holy Spirit opening up the heart and making sense of it. And Christ revealing himself, illuminating the word of God. The Spirit brings the the light of Christ into the heart that brings that dawning, that revelation, and things come alive in a true sense in their very... uh, the, The truth of reality, how things really are. I remember the difference. I remember what it was like to walk as a darkened person. You, you can't convince somebody to Christianity that way. Do you remember Lydia? Acts chapter 16, right? So Paul shows up in Philippi on his missionary trip, and he's looking for the synagogue. There isn't one. So if a town didn't have at least 10 Jews, it didn't, they couldn't constitute a synagogue. They didn't have any. There was a group of women who were praying by the river, Jewish women. So they're praying that men would be, Lord would raise men up to form a synagogue. So Paul went there. He went down there to talk to them. And there was a woman there named Lydia, and you remember her. Verse 14, one who heard us, while, they were, while he was teaching, he went there to preach. There's no synagogue. I'll go to where the ladies are praying for one. How about that? One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. That means she's very wealthy. Who was a... Now, this is key. Okay, this is key. Who was what? We don't care that she might be wealthy selling purple goods. Who was a worshiper of God. That's the key. You see, people that... that don't make sense of the word, that reject Christ and so on, they aren't looking for him. They don't want him. These ladies are gathering to pray to him that he would be manifest, that they would be able to have a synagogue where they could worship properly and so on. The Lord opened her heart 
to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. We, we pay a lot of attention, and we should, to the Lord opened her heart. And we pause on that. We talk about that. That's wonderful. See, God is sovereign. But look at who he opened the, the heart of. She was already worshiping him. We're talking desire here, folks. We're talking about the heart. We haven't stopped. There's a sincere endeavor to know him, to, to acknowledge that there's a creator, to, to acknowledge that there's, there's one who's responsible for all of this and we will, every one of us, stand before him. There's an honest and sincere endeavor to know him, to find him, to worship him. That was her. Now, see the Lord opening up her heart. Right? Now I have a question for you. How do you reconcile that? Y'all look as baffled as me. There's no reconciling at this side of glory. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. She was already a worshiper of God, already looking for him, and then he opened up her heart to understand the things that Paul's preaching. Don't try to reconcile that. Leave them alone. They're both true. They both ride together to glory. And there isn't a human mind that can reconcile that. But I'll tell you, we are called to embrace both because both are true. Luke, back to Luke 24 again. So let's leave the two men on the road of Emmaus and let's go to now he shows up in Jerusalem and the disciples there, they're in the, in the room. Did a lot of hiding back then. Luke 24, 44 to 45. These are my words, he said, that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You shouldn't be shocked by these things. I told you at least three times, as is recorded in Scripture, I must go to Jerusalem, they're going to treat me badly, and they're going to kill me. Then, then, it says, then he opened their minds. Which is first... We can't not think sequentially, can we? Which was first. We can't even figure out if it was the chicken or the egg. You ought to know you have some. The answer is yes, isn't it? The answer is yes. Listen to Paul in chapter 1, verse 16 to 18, part of this very long, uninterrupted single sentence of his that goes on and on. He ends with this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him. He has to give that to you. He has to give that to us. And why is it important? Verse 18, having the eye Eyes of your hearts enlightened. Whose job is that? That's his. Who's called to seek him? That's us. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What a beautiful prayer for them, isn't it? 
I'm confident this was his own prayer for himself. Let's pray to the Father of glory that he may give us a spirit of wisdom and of the revelation of the knowledge of him having opened our eyes and having our hearts enlightened. Why? That we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I'm just going to end this part on this verse with this. Remember 2 Corinthians 3, 6? Here's why. For the letter, what? Who's with me? For the letter kills. And what does it say after that? It's the spirit that gives life. It's not the letter of the law. It's not the letters in that, that comprise the words that are in this book you have. It is the Holy Spirit who must bring it to life. It's the Spirit that gives life. You remember when Jesus, one of his claims was, the Father has given him life. He, he's, he's the author of life. He brings to life. He can take the dead and bring them to life. We proves that with Lazarus, doesn't he? It's just amazing. Verse 40. Here's the key. Here's the key in verse 40. Why? Yet you refused. I like the NAS here. Yet you were unwilling. That's the bottom line. They, they don't desire this. That's, that's the problem. You can't, you can't, you and I can't change their heart. So our prayers for people that we love is that the Lord would change their heart, would give them a desire, change their will. The literal in the Greek translates, you do not will to come to me. That's what Jesus said. You, 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 don't, you don't will that. You don't want that. You don't will to come to me. You have no heart, no desire, no inclination. We're disinclined as fallen people to want to come to him. We want to check a box. Church attendance got that. Read my Bible today, got that. And miss him altogether. And yet he stands there and watches this. this this folly, this show, so that we feel good about ourselves. And then we wonder why we don't feel so good about ourselves. You refuse. You're unwilling to come to me. So they rejected Jesus Christ because they were unwilling to believe. That's the bottom line. They're unwilling to believe what their own scripture says. That's his point. And it's going to be his point when we come to that in those verses, Psalm 81, verse 11, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. That's why they didn't listen. Why do your children not listen? Because <laughs> they don't want to submit. Is this rocket surgery or what? It's not hard to figure out. Oh, I didn't hear you, Mom. Didn't hear you, Dad. Uh -huh. Yeah. You need to learn to listen for my voice because it could be painful for you if you don't because I have your best interest at heart and you need to trust that. They didn't want to submit to me, so they didn't listen to my voice. Remember John 1, verse 11? He, meaning Jesus, he came to his own and his own people, what? Did not receive him, right? Their Messiah is there. He shows up. 
Behold, the forerunner says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everybody should shout for joy. Because we all know we're sinners. They should shout for joy. And they're all suspect. They're all looking. Why? They don't want to submit. So they're unwilling is the issue. They don't need more evidence. In the end, it's not men's sins that prevent them from getting to heaven. It's their unwillingness to believe. It's their unwillingness to believe. Because he's provided a way for your sins to be forgiven, hasn't he? So it must be my unwillingness that prevented me from getting to heaven. Unwillingness to turn to Christ as Savior. John 8, 43, 44, and 47. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. So you feign lack of understanding. You, You want to strike up an argument. You want to debate me. And every time you've done that, you've embarrassed yourselves. And you are the teachers in Israel. This should be embarrassing for you. Well, what happens to a prideful, arrogant person who has been embarrassed publicly? They want to what? They want to kill him. He goes on, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. So you you see, you're either taking up the agenda of Jesus Christ, or you're taking up the agenda of whom? We like to think that there's just a good, maybe sort of a neutral moral category of, of being that we could be, where we're kind of good people. No. They're set in contrast, in bold relief from one another. They are opposed to one another. So you are either taking up the agenda of Christ or you're taking up the agenda of Satan. That's what happened to Peter, right? Who do you say that I am, Peter? Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He probably, at that point, he had to go, whoa, did I just say that? Because it didn't come from him. It came from the Father. You remember this, Matthew 16. Four verses later, he's talking about Jesus is telling them, okay, they're on their way. We've got to go to Jerusalem. Here's all these terrible things that are going to happen. May it never be. Now he's all emboldened, right? That's not going to happen. Not on my watch. That's my paraphrase. What does he say to him there? Get thee behind me, Satan. To his disciple? Mm -hmm. Can we take up Satan's agenda even as saved people sometimes? I think so. We talked about this morning in the first hour what the word vain means, what what the word futility is, the, the futile things. And I've often said that distraction is the enemy's most effective weapon. He can sideline you in your thought life. He can present things in such a way that he's captivated your thought life. And you're of no, no heavenly good. I remember when I first became a Christian, I heard somebody say, and they were, they were zealous. They loved the Lord, it seemed, so... Uh, but they said, you're, you know, you, you can be too heavenly minded that you're oh, no earthly good. That's a lie. 
That's a lie. But you can be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. What do we use our mouths for? What do we use our time for? What do we use our resources that God's blessed us with for? There's a lot of vanity. There's a lot of worthlessness, in other words, to the way we spend those things that belong to the Lord. Verse 47 of John 8, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. One man said, one writer said, Man's salvation, if saved, is entirely of God. Man's ruin, if lost, is entirely of himself. End quote. That's on you. Why? Because you were unwilling. You were unwilling. We don't have time to go through Romans 1, but read it. Actually, the whole section on the universality of sin and condemnation, verse, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, all have sin and so on. It's, it's all in there. It's all in there. It's not because God's un. Let's clarify something. It's not because God is unwilling to receive anyone. All who are willing to come, 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 come. It's because of their unwillingness to desire Him. They don't really. They may make themselves feel good by checking some box, went to church, did my devotional, but they don't really belong to him because there's too much of a sacrifice of the things that I like on this earth that's perishing. Love the Lord your God. What does the Shema say? Love the Lord your God with some of your heart, some of your... How much? Oh, that's right. That's right. J.C. Rowell said, either from pride or laziness or love of sin or love of the world, the, the many have no mind or wish or heart or desire to see Christ. End quote. That's it. The, the enemy would like you to think that that's your fault. It's not. Their heart is elsewhere. That's it. John 3.19, remember that, John 3.19, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people loved what? The darkness rather than the light. Why? Because, I love it when the word because is in there, because he gives us the reason, because their deeds were evil. I don't intend to change. I'll come to your church, I'll do, jump through some hoops, but he won't have my heart. It's too wrapped around something else. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. Why do you think he has to tell us that? <laughs> John 8, 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. He says there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Who is he talking about? His father. His father will see to his glory, and whose glory will the son see to? 
The Father is actually this, the Holy Spirit. I had to cut some of these things just for the time's sake. But the Holy Spirit in another place is said to bring glory to him. The, the main objective of the Holy Spirit that abides in believers is to glorify Christ, which is glorifying the Father, which is glorifying our triune God. But they're looking, obviously, from this statement and what he's about to say a little later on, in verse 44, you're receiving glory from one another. He says there, we'll get to that in a minute. But that's not what he does. John eight fifty four. if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. That's the one. He glorifies me. I'm not looking for it from any of you. None of you. I seek not glory from any of you. But you seek glory from one another. Wow. John 13, 31 to 32, after the whole foot washing and all of the rest, and Judas has had Satan come up into his heart. He's sending him on his little wicked task. He says in verse 31 to 32, when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now he will fulfill his calling to be the sacrifice for mankind, for the people who would believe. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, he goes on, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, maybe we have a better understanding of what that rather enigmatic statement means. But you are looking for glory from one another. We have quaint little titles for us. People pleaser. Fear of man. In 17, verse 1, he's done with his instruction to the disciples. That's chapter 14 to 16. It's time to go. So he prays to the Father. You all are familiar. Verse 1, here's how he opens the prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may be glorified. That the Son may glorify you. Do you see the reciprocity there within the Trinity? Do you see it? He, there, there's no place for man in there at all, though we fancy ourselves as having some very important role in all of this. We really don't. This is about God, not us. But it should correct our perspective in terms of the one who we should seek to glorify instead of each other. Peter, when he was preaching at Pentecost, remember this in Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. End of story. Verse, 12, verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Another key point. I mean, he's just letting them have it. But see what he's hammering in on? He is zeroing in on their hearts. You claim to be God's people. I'm going after you. I'm coming after you, and I'm going for the heart. It doesn't matter what you do to me. It doesn't matter. You're going to crucify me anyway, so it doesn't matter. So he can speak this way. You don't have the love of God within you. You're vacant. 
You're pretty tombs on the outside filled with dead men's bones. You're a filthy cup on the outside, or you're a pretty cup on the outside, all clean and shiny. In the inside, it's filthy. What's he speaking of? The heart. Always, always. You don't love him. So Jesus is making a crucial point here. A man may believe the facts of the, of the gospel. I mean, who in America really doesn't? have any clue, although we're getting to that point, aren't we, where it's like, Christian, what is that? Jesus, who? Sadly, we're getting there. But most people understand the gospel. So he might even be convicted about his condition before God, because only a fool is going to deny that there's something wrong with them. There clearly is something wrong with all of us. But so long as he loves anything more than God, he'll never be saved. He can try to mollify his conscience all he wants. He's not saved. He will have the primacy of your love or he'll have none of it. What does he rebuke the church at Ephesus for in Revelation chapter 2? You have left your first, not sequentially, the word there in the Greek means in supremacy. In primacy, your greatest love, which would set the course for all of our lives, would that it were true. Luke eleven forty two, Jesus saying, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. You're woefully unfair. You're corrupt in your courts. You're biased. You're... But yet you're tithing out your mint and your herbs. And then he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So go to church. Serve in the church. Do all of your things. But don't neglect the purpose for which you do that. That's what he's saying. The love of God. One of my favorite, all-time favorite songs. The love of God. Second Thessalonians, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 3, verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. The most important thing ever. Even Jesus, when he was asked in Matthew 22, when he was asked, they were trying to trip him up, what's the most important commandment? What was it? He quotes the Shema, doesn't he? Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then your neighbor as yourself. John says in his first epistle, 1 John 2, 5, whoever keeps his word... In Him, truly, the love of God is perfected. So we manifest the fact that the love of God is in us when we keep His Word. He says in John 8, 31, You truly are my disciples. He said it to the Jews there that were believing in Him. You're truly my disciples if you abide in my Word. That's where you'll find me. That's where I am. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And then Jude, the end of Jude, he finishes with this exhortation in verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting 
for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You know, I did a little of investigating there. They, there was many false Christs that showed up, and they embraced them. They would come and go. There's one uh, German Protestant theologian in the 19th century that wrote this. His name is Rudolf Steyer. He said, No less than 64 false messiahs appeared to them and were more or less believed. He of whom the Lord here prophesies is finally Antichrist with his open and avowed denial of God and of Christ, with his most daring, quote-unquote, I, before which all the proud will humbly bow down because they will find themselves in him and will honor him as their true God. Oh, I'll bet they will, end quote. <laughs> Verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? I mentioned this earlier, right? That's where they're looking for their glory. And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You're not looking for my glory. You're not looking for the glory of God. You're looking for the glory of man. You look for it from one another. Paul wrote against that. Remember in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he said, you, when you compare yourselves with the, yourselves, right? You are without Knowledge, you're, 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 you're foolish, you're ignorant. You don't even know what this is all about. Your comparisons, comparing your, your robes and your tassels and your fur hats and all the rest, how much of a following you have. Thank God there wasn't Facebook back then. I've got so many hundreds of people following me. Matthew 23, 5 to 7, Jesus sort of characterizing them, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. There it is. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, end quote. In verse 12, Jesus says simply but powerfully, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, that's what it's all about. They're into glorifying one another. There's sort of a quid pro quo arrangement there. I'll glorify you because the expectation is I'm going to receive that from you, for me. And that's what we do. And this man comes along and he shakes that thing to the ground. And what happens again when you make arrogant, prideful men that angry? You get killed. That's what happens. Happens on our streets, sadly. Dangerous thing. John twelve forty two to 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. This sounds like good news, doesn't it? But he goes on. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There it is. There it is. 
A person's not likely to believe in Jesus if this is what they're concerned about. If they're giving and receiving honor and praise to and from man, giving and receiving, it's all horizontal. It's all flesh-driven. It's not possible to believe unless you turn from the people-pleasing. You turn from the fear of man. You turn from the approval-seeking of others that has caused you to compromise your faith and seek only the glory of Christ. That's it. That's it. All the worldly-mindedness, all of these things have to be repented of and Instead, in its place, develop a sincere desire to praise God more than man, regardless of what it costs you. And sometimes it costs you a lot. It costs you a lot. The glory that comes from the only God, he says. The glory of God is manifested in one way. The glory of, you can't see him, you can't hear him. He made that point in verse 37. How is he glorified? How is God glorified? You can't see him, you can't hear him. In his son, Jesus Christ. That's the glory of God being manifested. Remember John 1, 14? And the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This should be a praise God moment for them. Oh my, we're seeing Yahweh. We're seeing God manifest in the flesh. This is him. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. God among us. God come to save us. And what did they do? Wow full of grace and truth. For which of my works do you stone me? He says in another place. Friends, that's pathetic. That is absolutely tragic and pitiful. Why do you want to kill somebody when he's only spoken the truth? Why? It's a very curious thing. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in what? The face of Jesus Christ. Praise God, Emmanuel has come. He is God with us, God among us, God who will save us. That's God manifesting his glory. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Here we go. Look, he just keeps going. He's going for the jugular here. He wants that heart split wide open. Why? Because it's a rock right now. It's stony. Something's got to split that open. How about this? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Maybe there's a pause there. And they're thinking, okay, all right. There's one one that accuses you. Who is he? Bring him here. Moses. (laughs) Yeah. The one you venerate. The one you always turn to. The name you probably speak the most. Moses. On whom you have set your hope. He accuses you. Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy, in verse 15, 17, and 18, we can see this is that Moses accuses them because it's Moses himself who says in that passage the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers 
It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's in that's Moses' writing. That's Moses' words that he got from God himself. Speaking of Jesus. But you did not receive me. You didn't receive me. Why? Not enough evidence? Your own venerated teacher, Moses himself, spoke of me. And yet, you reject me. He accuses you. John seven nineteen. Jesus saying, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. They used it however they wanted to. And when they wanted to and when they didn't want to, they didn't keep his laws. Romans two twenty one to twenty three. You then who teaches others, he's addressing the Jewish, the Jews here. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He's making Jesus' point here. You will be accused by none other than Moses. That's the indictment from Paul in chapter 2. Verse 28 and 29 of Romans 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one, what? Outwardly. Phylacteries, robes, tassels, sacrifices, mint and cumin, all the rest. Put it on the dung heap that Paul wrote about in Philippians. He's not one who is one merely or only outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one where? Inwardly. What's he referring to? The heart. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. He understands this now. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. It's from God. Paul straightens all of this out in those two verses. It's not going to happen through the letter. And this true child of God, his praise doesn't come from man. You're in trouble if you're looking for any kind of favor from man. You are already in trouble. You need to repent of that. We all do. Fear of man, people-pleasing, approval-seeking. Repent of it now. Galatians 4.21, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you listen to the law? The implication there is obviously not. Verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would have believed me. You would believe me, for he wrote of me. Philip got that on the spot. You remember that? Philip said in John 1.45, when he found Nathanael, he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Bam. No hesitation. No, I got to think this over. This is him. I recognize him. By what? By what Moses wrote. 
It's inescapable. You can't read no, uh, Moses, any of Moses, certainly all of Moses, with a true desire to know what the truth is from God and miss Jesus when he shows up. That's him. It's like John the Baptist said, that's him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Acts 26, Paul's making his defense to Agrippa. Remember that? Acts 26, 22 to 23. To this day, I have had the, the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He got that for, from a, a sincere investigation of his scriptures. And, of course, the Holy Spirit, right? Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The most important word in this gospel, believe, believe, believe. We commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ here this morning in Holy Communion based on that one word. Do you believe? If there's any question, let the cup pass by. Or make things right and partake together with us. Verse 47 is we're bringing this in for a landing. But if you do not believe his writings, Moses, how will you believe my words? You're not going to believe my words. You don't believe Moses. You don't obey what Moses has to say. You're not going to obey my words because this is all about you. You have no part of me. You're not of God, remember? Not believing the words of Jesus is tantamount to not believing the writings of Moses. It's that simple. Remember the, I'm going to finish with this. You remember the rich man and Lazarus, the poor servant of his. They both had died. They're both down in Abraham's bosom, and there's a chasm between the two. The rich man enjoyed his life on earth. The other was now in much greater comfort, and there's no way for the rich man to get over. Father Abraham, let me over there. I, I'm, I'm hot, I'm thirsty, and he can't get over there. So he makes a, a plea to Father Abraham, verse 27 of Luke 16, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, Lazarus, who had died. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the scriptures. Everything they need to know is there. Let them not just hear, but hear with ears to hear. In other words, let them hear and believe the scriptures. But they, they weren't interested in that. Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. <laughs> Verse 31, he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise 
from the dead. That's how hardened the unwillingness is. God must do a work. They have to change their heart. God has to do that, and this is what we pray for. There's no amount of evidentiary uh, facts that will change their opinion. Not that you shouldn't cite some of those. Sometimes they're helpful, I suppose. But it has to happen in the heart. I'm going to finish with these very quickly, and we're going to get ready for communion. So basically, so you have it in a list, a short list. Here's the four indictments that are leveled against those who reject Jesus as the Christ based upon this discourse. First, they lack the will or the desire to receive Christ. Second, they lack a genuine love for God. It's going to be one of these or a combination. Third, they lust for the praise and approval of man. And fourth, lack of true belief in the Scriptures. Father, help us. We want our hearts wide open for your voice. We want to hear you, O Lord. And so we ask that you come to us and make sense of these things. Make our heart alive. Fill it with the illuminating work of your word and by your spirit. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to receive these symbols, these elements of your sacrifice. And so may you be honored. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.